fellowship. And when you mention fellowship, especially within the churches of Christ, if you're like me, I'm telling you, your mouth starts to water, you get this little grumble in your stomach, and you start thinking about all the good food that you can expect at a fellowship dinner, that's because most people, when we say fellowship, we apply it to something like a fellowship dinner, an action. And that in itself, it's not a bad thing. Meat eating and God's word, they go hand in hand. It's scriptural. If it wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have given us so many examples of eating while spreading the word. Subject got me curious, I did a little research and learned that the Bible lists 14 specific accounts of Jesus either eating and, well, of eating and using a meal to teach his word. Most of these events, of course, they're covered in the, in the Gospels. This, this counts for 27 scriptures which refer, directly refer to Jesus' teaching while eating. Six in the book of Matthew, six in the book of Mark, ten in the book of Luke, and five in the book of John. And this is just the specific accounts. Doesn't include the times where it infers that Jesus ate while teaching during times such as a Passover meal or any of the other Jewish feasts which are listed in the Bible, which they would have followed. So, I'm sure there'd be many more times where we could just sit or list where Jesus used meal times to teach. So Jesus took advantage of these times to teach his words, such as at Matthew's house, showing him eating and teaching with tax collectors and sinners. Here Jesus was confronted, confronts the Pharisees, telling them that he came to call all sinners to repentance. This recorded three times. Matthew 9, 9 through 17, Mark chapter 2, 13 through 22, and Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. Also in the book of Luke, Jesus goes to eat at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, Jesus gives the example of the woman who was a sinner who was allowed to anoint his feet. Jesus forgave her of her sins. In this account, Jesus also gives the parable of the two debtors. And there's the account of Jesus eating at the house of Martha and Mary. This account's found in the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Here Jesus uses this time to teach and to have fellowship. In this account, he tells Martha not to worry about things which aren't important. So the Bible does teach us that Jesus used mealtimes to teach and for fellowship. And this is important because food and fellowship they do go together, and there's nothing better than a fellowship dinner. Just a little quick, little Timmy experience. So preacher of congregation, he'd been preaching on fellowship, and the importance of spending fellowship time with members of the congregation. Well, by the next Sunday, the preacher had already received several offers from members to come over for dinner on that Sunday afternoon. So you can guess his first offer was from parents of little Timmy. So that Sunday morning service, preacher and his wife, wife drove over to little Timmy's house, knocked on the door, and they were met by little Timmy and his mom. The mom welcomed the preacher and his wife and explained that her husband was called away to work and that it would just be her and little Timmy. After they go in and got inside and sat down for a minute, the mother and the preacher's wife went to the kitchen to finish cooking the lunch. This left the preacher alone with little Timmy. So the preacher commenced to start casual conversation with Timmy until lunch was ready. 
Running out of things to say, the preacher asked little Timmy what was on the menu for lunch today. Little Timmy didn't miss a beat. He just told the preacher they were going to have goat for lunch. Goat, the preacher said. We're having goat for lunch? Are you sure about that, Timmy? Well, yeah, let's say little Timmy. I heard Mom telling Daddy last night that this Sunday was as good as any to have the old goat for dinner. So that's the kind of story you tell when the preacher's gone. <laughs> so anyway, no, but seriously, uh, Doug does a fantastic job, but you do want to take a chance when you've got it. So why do I start with fellowship, the subjects fellowship dinners? And that's because a fellowship dinner brings a congregation together in a relaxed social setting. It gives members a chance to visit with each other over a cup of coffee or iced tea or a meal and to sit and sort of let their guard down a little. Plus, I personally think it's a blessing because within the Church of Christ, there are simply some of the best and some of the best blessed and talented from God when it comes to cooking and recipes. I think most of us men agree that the church of Christ most likely have some of the best cooks in the world. And when it comes to things like this, there are some very specific traits when it comes to, to fellowship dinners. And I didn't know we already had one scheduled when I did this. Fit right in. So, and I'm not talking about planning, organization, implementation, or facilitation of a fellowship dinner. I'm talking about what most men and kids because they're almost alike, are concerned about, and that's the consumption of a fellowship dinner. You know the most important part, and that's eating. I mean, if you haven't noticed, me and food, we go way back. We've had a long history together. But do you know the most important part of a successful fellowship dinner? It's deviled eggs. Oh, well, then you've got dessert, and then things like taco salad, meatloaf, brisket, fried chicken, Mexican casserole, broccoli and cheese casserole, Green bean casserole, tortilla soup, chili enchiladas, the list goes on and on. These all come in a close second. But you might ask, what's so special about deviled eggs? And it's simple. What's usually the very first item you come to that's set out on the tables at a fellowship dinner? Deviled eggs. When it's all said and done, at the end of a fellowship dinner, one thing that there's never leftovers of, deviled eggs. You just can't have too many. Then there's dessert. Just how important is dessert at a fellowship dinner? Just listen to the moms of the congregation. Almost unanimously, unanimously, every kid in the congregation, and probably husbands, get told the same thing. Finish your plate, and then you can get dessert. To most kids, that plate of food, it is simply a means to an end. It is just a way to get to dessert. But just to prove my point, at a fellowship dinner, have you ever gone and filled dessert plate first before you got sat down? I think we all have. So food and fellowship, they just go together. And using time like this to get together and have good fellowship is important. It brings people together. Whether it's a full meal or just sitting down over a cup of coffee or a glass of iced tea, it's important that we have good fellowship. But I kind of digress a little bit because the subject tonight is the true meaning of the word fellowship. A few weeks ago, I preached on the hope that was within us. Romans, probably most, mostly from chapter 8. And that hope of God, that hope of Jesus Christ, 
that hope that we have of eternal life in heaven. The hope that in realization that God sent his only begotten son to this cruel world so that we might have the opportunity and that promise of eternal life if we live faithful in him. So a hope and thankfulness of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Savior, who came to this cruel world to seek and to save that which was lost. The hope of having the Holy Spirit to help us and to guide us and to bring us closer to Christ. That hope of forgiveness, that hope of salvation and eternal life in heaven. And this sermon is on fellowship is pretty much a continuation or a part two of that same subject. Because through fellowship, we strengthen our faith. And fellowship also brings Christians closer together. But we need to understand what fellowship is and isn't to further our bond with God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I started this sermon on the subject of fellowship dinners. And that's because most people, when they hear the word fellowship, they immediately apply it to an action, to do something, like eating at a fellowship dinner. But the word means so much more than that. It has a deeper meaning than some type of participation. See, most apply the, the word fellowship, again, to an action or to a, as a verb, where it means, again, doing something. And that, again, is not the true meaning of that word. In fact, the word fellowship in the Greek form is used in the New Testament. It's actually a noun. It describes something. It's not an action. It's not a verb. Fellowship describes something. It has never been intended to be used as a verb or something meaning action. Its real meaning is to describe a thing, not action. The Greek word translated into English for fellowship is koinonia. Webster's defines it as the intimate spiritual communion and sharing in a common religious commitment and spiritual community. Most accepted English translation defines it this way, an association of people who share common beliefs or activities. This word, Greek word koinonia is used around some 20 plus times in the New Testament. In these 20 so or so times, it's translated four to four different words. Not every time is it translated as fellowship. 12 times it's defined as, or translated as fellowship. Three times it's translated as sharing. Two times it's translated as participation. And two times it's defined or translated as contribution. In most translations, it is also used as the word communion. So at some point, the word fellowship drifted from being this noun describing something and slowly became defined as a verb or an action. When I ran into words like this, where I find it over time, man or society in, in general, somehow slowly change it from its original meaning, I always try to ask myself a simple question. How can understanding this word and its original meaning, how can this understanding strengthen 
and enhance my relationship and understanding of God's Word. Simply, how does it make me a better and more faithful Christian? In the case of the word fellowship, this more accurate understanding can strengthen my faith and helps me better understand God's Word. But for some reason, again, society has changed the meaning of this word. Even in English, this word used to be, common, used, to be used commonly to describe something, not to imply an action. For example, take for instance a doctor who has nominated and accepted the position of a fellowship within a specific medical group. He gains this honor or position because he is accepted as having not just this common belief in something, but that he has an intimate and strong commitment and common beliefs with the society or organization that has offered this, this distinction. Simply, this doctor not just believes in the same policies and procedures of this group, but he holds these beliefs wholeheartedly. He has committed his life and practice to hold the same beliefs of the organization to which he has accepted this fellowship position from. So when we say we have fellowship with one another, we're saying we have our core beliefs in common with each other. It doesn't mean that we sat around a table together and drank coffee or visited. By saying we have fellowship with, with each other, we're saying that we are committed to having the utmost conviction in belief of the same things. Not that we met at noon and ate lunch. But given this understanding of this and the definition of, of fellowship, I firmly believe it's imperative that the church, meaning the churches of Christ as a whole, the church that Christ died for, must come together. It must believe together. It must pray together. And it must work together to fulfill the will of our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Meaning, we must believe the same things, pray the same things, and work together to come to a common set or common belief, which is the Bible. But just as important, again, we must come together physically. We must have fellowship with each other. So let's take this, this definition of fellowship, see how God intended it to be used and applied. If you would, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. So verse John chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full, fellowship with him and one another. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So back in verse three, it says that we have been, that we have seen and heard, we declare to you that what they've seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship. These common beliefs, this bond with us and truly our fellowship or those common beliefs and that bond is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, that, it, that this is written to us that our joy may be full and that we are to fellowship, again, to have that common belief or that bond with Him and with one another. Now jump to verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, we have that common bond, we have that common belief with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So to see that we're to have fellowship with God, with Christ, and with each other. Fellowship with God. The Apostle John writes in, again, 1 John 3, we just read that, that what they've seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And the things we write to you that are your joy may be full. Likewise, the Apostle Paul writes it this way in his first letter to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who you were called into the fellowship, that specific common belief and bond with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul also writes in his second letter to the church at Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Here in 2 Corinthians, we see that the word communion was used or translated. It was translated to communion. Again, this is the same Greek word, koinonion, that it also translated as fellowship the same word. The meaning is the same in both places. But what an extraordinary thought that the closeness, this common belief, this intimate association we have in our fellowship with God the Father and Jesus who is the Christ and with the Holy Spirit. That through that fellowship we have that common belief that bond, that intimate bond. This just expands on that joy. It, it just expands on that hope that we're to have in our hearts. When we have fellowship with God, it consists of us knowing God's will, that we conform to his image, and that we are sharing 
his love, his work, and his purpose. But it also comes with warning. The Apostle John also writes in 1 John 1 through 5, well, chapter 1, 5 through 6, that this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walked in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We have to be conformed to and follow God's will. We have to do God's will. We, don't have, we do not have fellowship with God unless we are doing his will and obeying his word. Let's look at a few other places where this word koinonia is translated to English and their meaning. And I think I'm doing pretty good pronouncing that word. <laughs> I think I'm about five times without messing it up. But Romans chapter 15, verse 26 says, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Now again, that word contribution, and again, it's that same Greek word, koinonia, and the exact word translated other places as fellowship. The translators here, to make it more clear, have translated it to contribution because of the context. The idea or meaning is that they made a contribution to the poor as an expression of their fellowship that they had, which means that this contribution means that they were sharing based on their common belief, based on their closeness, that intimate closeness, and that intimate relationship that they had with each other and with God. So by using this word, it actually means that their contribution was then a sharing, not just a giving. So our offering or contribution that we take up is better understood as us sharing, not giving. It implies a duty or a responsibility. Sharing, though, implies our free will and willful giving. And it makes an important impact on me understanding that our offering is better understood as a sharing of what we've been blessed with that we are sharing, again, not just giving. So another, let's look at one more where this is translated. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll start, we'll read verse 16. It says, the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Jesus Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Again, here we see that communion of the blood of, G of Christ and the body of Christ is the same common bond that we have that fellowship provides. The close relationship with God and Christ calls for us to participate in a unique fellowship. 
that has been won for us by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This simple understanding of such a word, it brings so much more. It opens so many doors to understanding of our relationship that we have or are supposed to have with our Lord God and Savior. To me, it just gives it a deeper and more meaningful, meaningful understanding of our relationship and again of that hope that we are supposed to have within us. And then we are supposed to also have fellowship with other Christians. Having a common love, having a common belief that we have the same understanding and that this is what binds us together. And I think I tied about three songs to that. We saw this earlier when we read 1 John 1 through 3, and I, I know I've repeated this, but it's so important that says that which we have seen and heard and declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And that is so important that we have that bond, that we have that intimate closeness. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We, again, it is that same intimate closeness relationship. This shows that our fellowship with the Father and also with the Son is the same fellowship we're to have with other Christians. That our fellowship we have with each other, this is based on our same common beliefs, these core beliefs, the Bible, and only the Bible. That's based on the same intimate or close relationship we have with our Lord God and Savior. That we have a common belief and share a common unity or oneness with God, with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, and again, with other Christians, that we are, we are to believe the same thing, which again, the Bible, the Word of God. But we must also be cautious with our fellowship. And again, who we have that, have this openness with. 2 Corinthians 6.14 reads, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness. Again, those are the same two, those two words are the same Greek word, koinonia. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what bond, close-knit unity, what, do we, what does that have with, with righteousness and with lawlessness? And communion here is the same word. And what bond or close relationship, intimate relationship, that close bond has light with darkness. It doesn't. So this shows that we're not to have fellowship with sin. That light has no place associated with darkness. We must pay close attention as to where we're having fellowship with. By having fellowship with someone we're actually saying that we share a common belief and have the same values 
as those who we are associating with or worshiping with and having fellowship with. This same thing is also shown in Ephesians 5.11, which reads, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Not only are we not to have fellowship with those who aren't in fellowship first and foremost with fellowship based on with God and his word, but rather we're also to expose it, bring it to light. You know, as Christians, we all have the same calling. We've all received the same gospel. And we all have the same belief, or to, or to have the same belief, and follow the same word of God, the Bible. Now, I study with somebody, I always start off with, you can bring whatever book you want, but whenever we come down to the text, it's going to be what the Bible says. I don't care what Spurgeon says. I don't care what John Wesley says. I don't even care what B.C. Goodpasture said. We may take it under advisement, but we're going to follow what the Word says, and we're only going to use that, the Bible. And he, they, a friend of mine, he, he comes, and he's got, I think he's got a doctorate, and he comes, you'd think he has to bring a wheelbarrow or a, or a or a dolly to carry the books that he wants to bring. And I show up with just a Bible. And I'm telling you, you know, we make that point over and over. We are to believe the Word of God and only the Word of God. I think it's best to find in 1 Corinthians 15.33, which says, Do not be, de be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And I mean, that's so true. You just can't put it any simpler. We must be cautious who we say we have fellowship with. I want to make one last closing point, and the sermon will be yours. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and I know so many people have that memorized, but we're going to read back Acts 2, 38 through 42. I think it makes a better impact when you see it in black and white. Acts 2.38, starting there. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day there were about three, there were 3,000 souls added to them. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers. This scripture, it has such huge significance, but I think it also, with verse 42, it has huge significance when it comes to the word fellowship. Here we read 
that some 3,000 new Christians pretty much all at once. We can deduce that all this happened in Jerusalem and not really scattered over a large region, region because it started there. But all here, all was, it was here in the city of Jerusalem. That's going to be a large crowd. They are all new converts. They were all cut to the heart with what they had heard. But I imagine the apostles, they had to be struggling to set up some form of organization because all this is happening at once. No one built church buildings ahead of time for them to assemble in. They didn't have elders and deacons already appointed ahead of time to provide some form of organization or continuity or anything for these new converts. Plus, because it hadn't been written yet, they had no copy of the scriptures like we have today. They had the Old Testament, and probably several of them were probably very studied in the Old Testament. And they went and researched all the prophecy that had just been opened and enlightenment to them. They knew scripture, so many of them. The Apostle Paul as Saul, he knew scripture. He knew what had been prophesied in the Old Testament, but his, his eyes had been blinded. But once, that had, he had, once these new converts, once they had been cut to the heart and knew, their eyes had been opened. So they, had, they, were, they went back and, and could restudy all the prophecy. But in verse 42, Again, we read that they devoted themselves to the instruction and doctrine of the apostles and to fellowship. Simple question. I mean, I know they had the apostles there, but who told them to have this fellowship? Who told them that it was that important? Who instructed them on the significance and importance and importance to have fellowship? Who instilled that idea in them? It must have been something to behold, to witness the conversion of thousands of people within such a short period of time. And one of the first things these new converts do is to have fellowship with one another in the breaking of bread and in prayer. You know, we sing a, a song that fits very well right here. And that with this concept, with this definition of fellowship, we've sung it over and over, but I think it gives a new meaning of understanding what that word means. A common love for each other, a common gift to the Savior, a common bond holding us to the Lord, a common strength when we're weary, a common hope for tomorrow, a common joy in the truth of God's word. You know, one of the greatest gifts that our Lord and Savior has given us is salvation. But in addition to salvation, we've been blessed with one, another greatest blessing in the living a faithful Christian life devoted to God. And that's fellowship. Fellowship with other fellow Christians. 
who share the same core beliefs we have this intimate relationship with all based on the Word of God and simply the Word of God. God has a plan and God has a design. He knows our wants. He knows our needs. He knows our trials. He also knows our fears. But through fellowship, we have support, and most of all, we have salvation. You know, every time we come together, we do ex extend that opportunity that if anybody has difficulties, anybody that has needs of prayers of the church, we want to offer that and extend that invitation. But we also, for anybody that's made that decision to be baptized, we don't want to take that lightly. I know we do that at the, at the end of every, of every sermon, and that's common within the Church of Christ. But that, that offer is open 24-7. We, we always want that to be extended. And the reason we do it is we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what trials and tribulation we might run into. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're guaranteed right now, and that's it. But through that faith, through that hope that we have in Christ, in our hearts, that's what brings us closer to each other and closer to God, is through that fellowship. So if you have any needs or wish prayers of the church, we want to extend that opportunity now as we stand and sing.